0: She's a former FBI agent executive. She's also a lawyer, a Cook County prosecutor, a journalist. She is a corporate security training director, author of the book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. She's here to talk about her experience investigating mass shooting events. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, the realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma. Police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events. Free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Calling us from Washington, D.C. area, we have Catherine Schweit on the phone. Catherine is a person with a huge resume, former FBI special agent executive, Cook County prosecutor, that means she's a lawyer, and I'll be happy to talk to her, unlike many lawyers, journalist and corporate security training director. Also, there's more, author of the book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. Catherine, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated.
1: Well, thanks. So kind of you to talk to me, even though I'm a lawyer.
0: Yeah, I know. Uh, look, I'm an old city cop. You know how it goes with lawyers and old city cops. Sometimes it's a love-hate relationship, right?
1: I get it. I get it. I But I served the cops well as a prosecutor, so I like cops.
0: I do, too. The prosecutors that I worked with and uh, went to trial with were phenomenal in Baltimore. The hardworking folks never got enough attention, never got enough appreciation for all they did. And that also goes for the public defenders. They never got appreciation for what they did, and they always got dumped on. Anytime something went bad, it was always their fault.
1: Yeah, thankless job. Uh, But bless them for doing it. It's a thankless job.
0: You know, the truth is, Catherine, I tell people— I pride myself on being a good cop. I did a good job investigations. I did a really good job report writing and, and testifying in court. And you know how taught me to be really good is the testifying was the public defenders in district court. They were really top notch lawyers.
1: They're there every day. The prosecutors are in court every day, too. But those public defenders are in court uh, trying to do their best to represent people who just have no place else to turn. And they do it every day, every day, every day. They're fantastic. I agree with you. It doesn't surprise me to hear you say that.
0: Yeah, you know, Hollywood has really done a horrible job portraying law enforcement officers in, in their films, TV, and social media as well, and news. But the only other people that get the same sort of negative publicity all the time are prosecutors and public defenders. And it's almost like a laughable stereotype.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. They're stereotyped into some buttonhole into some positions, not unlike the bad relationship between the FBI and and law enforcement, which we all know if you work on the ground, you don't have time for bad relationships.
0: No, we don't. And we used to kid each other a lot, and we made fun of the FBI. They made fun of us. We made fun of the state police. They made fun of us. Same with the (laughs) county. But the truth was, and you know this, Catherine, when it came, push came to shove, and things got dirty, we always took care of each other. We always had each other's back, and we always demanded, unlike what a lot of people think, we always demanded people do the job the right way.
1: That's right, because you can't afford to make mistakes, right? I mean, that's what we know from working on the ground.
0: I remember being a rookie cop, and the one thing that was taught to me early on was: you don't want to be the cop. You don't want to be the bad guy that ruins a, a case, especially somebody who killed someone or murdered a police officer. You don't want to be the one that did something stupid and emotional and and got the case thrown out. So don't ever be that guy.
1: Yeah, I have to tell you, I when I worked in Chicago, you know, as a prosecutor great uh officers who came in and and i actually teach uh, DePaul university i teach the uh law students i teach the police officers in a master's program there teach them evidence and that's one of the things that we talk about in class is you know make sure that you control those people around you too, control your temper control everybody else's temper because you know you mess a case up you mess a case up and nobody wants to have that happen
0: no you certainly don't want to be the one ethically that does something wrong. You don't want to be the one that is something stupid. We all made mistakes. Sometimes our emotions got beyond us, and that's, I believe, a squad concept really helps rein you in when you have that going on, because everybody has a bad moment, everybody has a bad day. And as long as you make mistakes doing your job, that's one thing. Without beating this issue into the ground, this whole blue line wall of silence thing, I've never experienced it. I don't know if anybody else that has, and I'm not sure when it faded from the American lexicon, but it's been gone for a very, very long time. One of the interesting things about your career, Catherine, you, you mentioned it, you teach police officers. You're a lawyer. You're a, a former FBI agent. How does, and by the way, an author as well, and an investigative security consultant, where do you find time to get all this done?
1: Well, I think it just kind of means I can't keep a job, Jay. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I, I, I do work. I, I thought when I retired from the FBI in 2017, I'd have more time to do the other things I wanted to do. But I spend a lot of time at my office at home. So uh, it, I, I dig it out, I think, because I'm a mission-oriented person. I'm kind of a do-getter, and I just want to help where I can.
0: Very briefly, tell us about your law enforcement career in the FBI.
1: Well, I, uh, I came out, uh, I was born in Detroit. Hurrah. And uh, and worked in Chicago as a prosecutor, as you mentioned. And then uh, while I was there, went to law school and then um, had a cousin who was an FBI agent, kind of talked me into applying. And so I joined the FBI, was assigned um, to our Milwaukee office, which is one of our smaller divisions, covers the state of Wisconsin. Really did my groundwork there, like you know what it's like to be a rookie. I was working national security matters, um, international terrorism, and bank robberies, um, white supremacist cases, a lot of white supremacist cases. And then um, I got, a, I got uh, asked by the boss, which means I was told, um, to supervise the terrorism desk. Uh, and that happened to coincide a week before 9-11. I was the acting supervisor handling terrorism and pretty much started drinking by fire hose uh, as, nine, as we de- dealt with the reactions from 9-11. I went from there to one of our satellite offices, a resident agency where you handle everything from anybody who walks in off the street to um, big terrorist incidents and international incidents in coordination with other federal partners and local uh, officers. Sometimes, primarily, you're the only federal agent there, so you've got to rely on great relationships with the state and local police officers and tribal officers. Then I went out to Washington to work on counterintelligence, um, National Security Matters, uh, in Washington and in both head, FBI headquarters and in our field office there in Washington, D.C., which is where I really became exposed to, uh, you know, what I what I do now, which is mostly mass shooting activities, but uh, both in headquarters and the field office. And as I moved through my supervisor positions and uh, different, you know, authoritative positions that, that, that we have lots of names for that don't mean anything to the general public, uh, I, you know, became uh, managed more and more people through... Uh, you know, just as I rose up in the ranks, and I ended up uh, in the last five years uh, as an executive in charge of the FBI, so created the FBI's national security or national security program that's for with regard to active shooters, uh, these mass shootings, and uh, looking for ways to solve that and to help support state and local officers who really are, are at the front of the front of the door when the shooters come in.
0: So you really worked your way from the ground level up.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of a little bit the way that the FBI works. Is you, Everybody starts out as an agent, and a, because an agent, it's kind of like they say about the Marines, an agent is an agent is an agent. Everybody's got to be able to do everything.
0: One of the reasons why I love talking to you, Catherine, is I love shattering stereotypes, especially the stereotypes about law enforcement that the news media, Hollywood, puts out there. And there are so many. I'm, by the way, an Irish Catholic, some would say a Neanderthal, Cretan, knuckle-dragging epitome of what a street cop looks like and acts like. By the way, I always say, when I'm 85, living in an old folks' home, people go, shh, there's 50." when I'm walking with my walker. You <laughs> defy a lot of those stereotypes. We're talking with Catherine Schweit on the Law Enforcement Show. We're talk about mass shootings, her involvement, investigations, what she's learned, in particular, the Navy Yard and Holocaust Museum. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events. Free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free. And be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk radio show and podcast podcast. Back to our conversation with Katherine Schweit. She is a retired FBI executive. She's agent. She's a lawyer, Cook County prosecutor. She is a security consultant, also a professor and author of the book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. During your career in the FBI. Before we're the break kathy started talking about you became involved in investigating overseeing and learning as much as possible about mass shooting situations and one of the ones that i do recall and i love to say vividly but i don't recall like i used to was the holocaust museum in dc scene of a horrible horrible event and you were involved in investigating that one weren't you
1: Yes, I was. I was working in our Washington field office at the time uh, that shooting. If, as you recall, was in the summer 2009. So Washington D.C., hot, hot, uh, steamy summers where you know tons and tons of school kids in town um, and tourists in town. So it was quite a um, it was quite an event.
0: And there's a potential for a tremendous amount of loss of life. I do remember some people did die and some were injured. What was the overall count casualty count
1: yeah let me give you just a background uh just uh to refresh uh you yours and the listeners uh, recollections we had a uh, incident uh, the, the that occurred right around noontime it's actually it was almost one o'clock but you know just in that noon lunch hour we had an 87 year old man who drove up in his car parked right in front of the building in the parking lane in a very busy road got out of his car and walked into the building. And as he walked into the building, he raised a shotgun and killed a security guard. There's a special police officer. So these are these are law enforcement officers, not uh, you know security guards. This is a actually museum special police officer uh, Stephen Tyrone Johns. The officers was working with two other officers, who exchanged fire, and shot the subject in the neck. So it was very quick two-minute incident, but very dramatic incident that occurred in downtown Washington, one that we haven't seen in a tremendous number of years.
0: And that's the type of environment where you wouldn't expect this sort of thing to occur.
1: Exactly. And the building, like a, as many buildings in Washington after 9-11 and, and subsequent events, uh, the building had security. Um, the Holocaust Museum building has um, has been opened, uh, I think it was opened um, Uh, probably, uh, I think, uh, uh, maybe uh, 92. So it had been open for a few years and good security in the front, good security in the back, just like all the other security where people would walk to magnetometers and things like that. And there had never really been anything like that. And I'll tell you, I can tell you, because I was there, the FBI had no known threats. There were no concerns at the time that were any specific threats. So it just literally kind of came out of the blue, which is what happens in these kinds of shootings sometimes.
0: And it's very unusual, and I'm by no means an expert, but it's very unusual to have a a shooter that's elderly in their 80s that does this sort of thing. That's correct.
1: Um, You know, I've I've researched a lot of these shootings, as you can imagine, because I I, I authored the uh, FBI's research on mass on active shooters, and we had shooters as young as 12, but this was our oldest shooter in 20 years, and and he was 87 at the time. um, And in fact, he was hit in the neck. Um, in exchange of gunfire, and he died six months later in the hospital. Um, so he had just turned uh, he had turned 88 a few weeks after the, after the shooting incident, but he was 87 at the time, which is an important thing to say because 88 means something to white supremacists, and in this this case, this was a white supremacist, and we wanted to. And he's neo-Nazi, self-avowed. He'd had a lot of trouble with the law before and uh, he 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 had was very intent on doing this, but you are correct. The average age what, what we see is in the thirties, thirty five years, thirty five years old, median age, thirty two.
0: I'm so, glad you very unusual. I'm glad you didn't mention his name. I'm I'm a big proponent of not giving these people any publicity whatsoever. You mentioned the white supremacists, and it, i I have to say this. I was working as a sergeant in northwest district of baltimore and it was martin luther king jr's birthday and we had the NWCP headquarters in our district and a group of people had gotten a permit to do a protest slash parade at the NWCP headquarters what a lot of people realized back then it was well off the beaten path and people couldn't see it and it was neo-nazis uh, neo-Nazi skinheads and KKK that were doing this and I was the acting lieutenant in charge. Quiet day. And they wanted to go to a busy intersection to do it, which wasn't for the permit, for the permitted area. But we had to make sure that their right to free speech was protected. However, they knew right off the top of the bat without a shadow of a doubt because I had a conversation with the leader, there'd be no problems, there'd be no violence, there'd be none of that stuff because it would be handled decisively. Uh, that's all I can say about this. It's a bad situation for a law enforcement being you, you you don't want to protect these people's rights, but you've got to.
1: You're right. I mean, I think that especially, you know, I I'm obviously as an FBI agent, the Constitution is sacrosanct. That's what we swear an allegiance to is the Constitution. And that includes the First Amendment and all the other amendments to the bill in the Bill of Rights. And everybody does have that authority, that right to assemble, to peaceably assemble, to speak their what they want of their own free will and say what they want to say as long as they do it peaceably. But I think your point is what you saw is absolutely well taken about what happens in those instances when they come together for a march for a protest, and they're all together, I think they stop and think about the fact that we're going to have this little march on the corner of 4th and Main, but if we cause any problems, the police are going to give us, uh, we're going to give police a reason to cause problems. But I think these individual situations, where like this guy who came and, and pulled up in front of the Holocaust Museum, is one guy, he's not thinking, he's had trouble before, he was arrested and actually served jail time for trying to take hostages. Uh, at the Federal Reserve Board. Um, He didn't like their policies. And and I think, you know, it's easy to look at somebody like that and say, oh, this person is so down the drain and he's such a mess. But, you know, if you look back in this guy's history, he's a college graduate. He was in the Navy. He he commanded a PT boat. He worked as an ad executive. He had his own job and his own life. But then somehow he just it just started to go downhill and nobody caught it.
0: And uh, this is this is what the result was. And one of the things that people always say in the news will interview people say, I never saw a sign of, he's a quiet guy, he kept himself, never saw it. We as a society teach our children, yeah, be worried about the boogeyman, be worried about the guy down the street that looks a little creepy, that's got the car, hey kid, let's go help find my puppy. And, and those are legitimate threats to be concerned about. But the far more dangerous are the, the man, the woman, who looks like everybody else, doesn't attract attention, and all of a sudden, May, may not be all of a sudden we hear them com- creating committing huge acts of violence I believe this guy walked up and said something first didn't he
1: spot on actually he he didn't say anything coming to the door he had uh, etchings on his shotgun he had a he had a Winchester shotgun with him a 12 gauge that he used and uh and he didn't as he what really what happened and and uh, how unfortunate that the special officer uh Johns was Very well loved. He'd been on the on the scene for six years working there, and he was the greeter kind of. You know, he came to the door, and when he saw this gentleman get out of the car, he actually stepped up to the door and opened the door for him. And in exchange, the man raised a shotgun and killed him.
0: We're taking a short break. We're talking with Catherine Swite. Catherine is a former FBI agent, executive a lawyer cook county prosecutor she is a corporate security trainer and author of the book stop the killing how to end the mass shooting crisis don't go anywhere we'll be right back one of the questions i get all the time is how can i show my support for law enforcement we're all busy we've got busy lives but there's something oh so simple you can do with our facebook page Search for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page, and when you see a post you agree with that resonates with you, share it. Especially episodes of the podcast. To do all that, just search for us on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. The conversation with Catherine Schweit. Catherine is a Retired FBI agent, executive, she's also a lawyer, Cook County prosecutor, journalist, corporate security training director, author of the book, Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. We're talking about, earlier in your career, we talked about what you did in the FBI. All very much appreciated. I forgot to say thank you for your service, but I do thank you very, very much. One of the difficult things you had to deal with in your career was overseeing, investigating these mass shootings. And another one in the D.C. area that I do remember, again, the details get kind of fuzzy, was the Navy Yard shooting. A lot of people don't realize that aren't in D.C. a lot or live outside the Beltway that the Navy Yard is a huge area with lots of people. And I believe the vice president's residence is not far from there as well either.
1: Yeah, everybody who's anybody lives somewhere or walks around or drives by the Navy Yard, and it's very close to the Capitol building. Um, and so it is a very high security area, and it's where, you know, NCIS is, and, uh, and it's Navy Yard. It's where the Navy is, uh, not, you know, for the most part. And so that, you're right, uh, that was a terrible shooting, too. I was actually, I'd moved from, I'd been promoted and moved into FBI headquarters by the time that the Navy Yard shooting occurred where the Holocaust shooting was in 2009, the Navy Yard shooting was uh, in 2013. But it, too, was a, a kind of a warm fall day, uh, which I guess is better than responding to something in the snow or the ice and the rain, I say, as a Northerner. But it was uh, it was a completely different type of situation than Holocaust, because in Holocaust, we had a situation that was quickly over in two minutes. In Navy Yard, uh, I was working in our strategic operations command center, and we were agonizingly listening to radio transmissions and trying to coordinate resources as the shooting went on for more than an hour, which was the longest shooting spree that we've dealt with.
0: I remember hearing all kinds of reports, and this is one of the reasons why I suspect the police and the federal agents don't want to give out information until they have it nailed down, but they were giving out different reports of how many shooters. Was it one shooter?
1: you have good memory there because that's exactly what happened there was a there was a single shooter but the reports all day long law enforcement uh, had heard there might be two and one of the police departments involved was reporting that there were two we were reporting that there was one we were trying not to trump any any local reports because we try to coordinate everything through the uh National Capital Response Squad, which is a group of all the agencies in Washington D.C. that respond together, they have common radio channels, which is, you know, as a law enforcement officer, is so important. Um, so we had great response, but that idea of are you looking for one shooter or two is a dramatically affects the way you you go into a scene.
0: An environment like the Navy Yard, where there's a lot of buildings, a lot of hard surfaces, it's not like a rural area where you have one gunshot. You have no. one gunshot, you have multiple echoes, and it can easily be confused as being multiple shooters. But there was, if my memory is right, and trust me, Catherine, my ripe old age, as often as not, they were following and had reports of this guy on video at different locations, security video, throughout the, the buildings there.
1: Well, we, we did, but I'll tell you, um, let me tell you some of the good and the bad about this uh, inside baseball you're right. The building is uh, the building itself, Building 197, is about a 600,000-square-foot building. It's an atrium building, so the ricochets and the sounds. Uh, this guy also had a, uh, a 12-gauge shotgun, and so the sounds were just echoing in the building, and so it was very hard to know where he was. In fact, he, he started on the fourth floor, and he went to the third floor. Then he came down to the f- first floor, and, and as that noise is going on, In fact, there are cameras all over the building, but I'll tell you what happened when you talk about protocols and what we learned from an after action. The guy who was responsible for the video cameras, uh, someone pulled the fire alarm when the shooting started, and the guy who was responsible for the video cameras in the building did exactly what his protocol was. He exited the, the surveillance room, locked the door, and left the building. So the entire time that we were looking for that shooter, we had no knowledge of the cameras and no access to them.
0: They might as well have not existed at that point.
1: Exactly, and I think another thing that we, uh, you know, remember the remember there were some shootings at Fort Hood, yeah, uh, and and they maybe uh, they they changed the military changed protocols and said you must have a nine one one operator system, uh, so that you can make phone calls in. Well, that kind of backfired at Navy Yard because. Everybody who was in the building who was calling their internal 911, those calls went to one location. People who were calling the external 911, those calls went to Metropolitan Police, MPD, so Washington Metropolitan Police Department. So what happened is the police officers were only getting, the police department was only getting a fraction of the material because a lot of the information was going into the Navy Yard 911 system and those people there who were not communicating with the MPD people. So a lot of coordination issues that were just frustrating. And I think, you know, Kathy Lanier, the police chief at the time, who's now at the NFL, she did such a fantastic job of, uh, you know, kind of, I'm going to say owning up, but it wasn't anything she did that was her fault. But, you know, she was straightforward about here's all the things that went wrong and here's the difficulties that we had. She had officers who responded, who actually, I'll tell you, after about 70 minutes, uh, two teams of officers managed to come from one from one end of a corridor and another team from another end of the corridor and they uh, the shooter um, actually popped up and um, and and shot at them and uh, and one of the officers took a, a bullet in the vest which was fantastic as opposed to any place else and they managed to shoot and kill him but I'll tell you the two uh, responding teams were on different radio channels so they didn't know each other was coming down the hallways
0: we had that problem, too. And I know a lot of things changed after 9-11. But I remember policing in Baltimore where cops in the Northwest District couldn't talk to cops in the Northern District. And Perfect. the other jurisdiction in the county, they couldn't. Now, Crazy. at least we shared dispatchers so we could we could pass information back and forth. But it was very difficult. And then you have two teams in a, in a hostage or a barricade or an active shooter situation, trying to locate the shooter, and they can't even communicate. That's really tying one hand behind their back.
1: Oh, absolutely! And I'll tell you, one of the most frightening. You know, not surprisingly, I also did a uh, I did a cold brief. You know, I did a hot wash with the uh, with the, with the command leader from the FBI who I know, and to, to see, okay, what did I not hear? While you were down there because he was an operations uh, command operations uh, on the ground, uh, uh, special ops command. And he said to me, I have never had so many people running at me and running towards a building at once. He said we had 117 law enforcement officers inside the building and could not clear the building until we ordered everybody out of the building. They had officers who were tactical teams from MPD who were trained to act or shoot a response with three people on a team. They had uh, off-duty officers from different agencies who ran inside with their Hawaiian shirts on and shorts and their baseball caps backwards on their heads, but they had a gun on, so they went in. So everybody's well-intentioned, right? But it creates this chaos that could have involved a tremendous amount of blue-on-blue. Blue.
0: Thank goodness that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you know, we, we, I think was probably fortunate is uh, this, uh, the shooter, you know, he's 34 years old. He had some kind of longstanding mental health issues. They really weren't properly reported. And there was a lot of stuff afterwards about whether or not he should have been allowed in the building that day and things like that and the troubles that he'd had. But he came with uh, this uh, Remington 7870, 12 gauge. And I, if I'm, I might be wrong about it, but uh, I think that he uh, had, um, 20 rounds in his pocket. And that was it. So, you know, we've had a huge number of shooters that have come in with hundreds of rounds. And I think he had 20 rounds for the shotgun that he bought the day before. And that's the reason he went down to the first floor. And I'll tell you the sad part uh, is that he went down to the first floor, probably because he ran out of rounds. And when he he took the internal stairway, which we saw later on film, uh, he took the internal stairway and went down to the first floor. The security guard who was there armed, had been told stay by here don't let him out of the building but he had his back to the door where the stairway was
0: we're gonna take a short break we're talking with katherine swite trust me you don't want to go anywhere a lot of great stuff to cover we'll be right back if you're on the clubhouse drop-in audio chat app be sure to look for me and follow me my name's john The letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Conversation with Catherine Schweit. She is a retired FBI agent executive, also a lawyer, Cook County prosecutor. She's a professor, she's a journalist, she's author of the book Stop the Killing How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. For me to break, Catherine, we're talking about the Navy Yard shooting, and I had it cut for a hard break. You're talking about a security guard, a special officer, at the stairwell. The bad guy's coming down the stairs and the special officer is being instructed not to let him out, correct?
1: Exactly. The, the law enforcement, there are a tremendous number of law enforcement going into the building and the law enforcement outside is trying to begin to coordinate who is going into the building. And they turn to this gentleman and say, if you see him coming down to the lobby, don't let him leave the building. And so he's there in the building, and it's it's sad to watch, uh, but we obviously had an opportunity to do a after action and look at all the videotape and um, and the surveillance cameras. And you see him come down the stairway and down the stairway and down the stairway from third and then fourth, fourth, third, second, first. He pops out that door, and he walks up right behind the security officer and kills him. And uh, it, And he takes the security officer's gun and goes back into the stairway. And when he goes back into the stairway, I think he gives a momentary thought to leaving the building. And the stairway has an exterior door also, which we know a lot of people fled from. And because the fire alarms had been called, pulled in the building, thousands of people had emptied out of the building. And the the, uh, shooter, the killer, before he goes back upstairs, he opens up the side door, like looking out into the alley thinking maybe I'll just step out here is perhaps what he was thinking. And there are so many people outside. He lifts the security officer's gun, fires one round, and then runs back inside. That one round kills an individual running away and shoots him in the head as he's running away. So now we have a shooter that appears to have occurred shooting outside making it much more complicated for law enforcement because now they have a person who's hit in an alley and we don't understand why.
0: And none of this at the time makes sense. And to be honest with you, none of it really makes sense logically afterwards why people do these things. Mental illness, hate, whatever it might be. My mind doesn't really work that way. I, I realize law enforcement officers have a job to do and the first thing is you you want to neutralize the threat so that they can't hurt anybody else. One thing before we get further in the conversation, both of these horrible events have in common is they both use 12-gauge shotguns. People would automatically assume we're talking about the the heavy military-style weapons. 12-gauge shotgun is no joke. And... They can do a lot of damage, as was the case with both of these situations. And they're readily available. They're not hard to get. I'm, I remember watching a documentary, I believe it was about World War I, and the 12-gauge pump, pump shotgun was designed for trench warfare. A lot of people don't realize that.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Because it is a, you know, it's a simple gun. We think of it as a hunting item, right? Or, or something for target practice, but uh, it leaves a
0: big hole. Yeah, cool. I've got a 12-gauge shotgun, and I I tell people it's probably the best weapon for home defense uh, as a 12-gauge shotgun. People love to talk about it, and I'm not an expert when it comes to rifles, guns, or anything like that. I never had them, Catherine, until I got into police work, so it was always a tool for the job. It was never a passion of mine. I, I want to go back to... Your opinions, having learned and investigated these things, what's the number one thing that we in society need to do to start preventing some of these things from occurring?
1: I think the number one thing that we need to do is own it. I think as a civilian, most civilians don't, most citizens say the police have to solve this problem. The police, I'll call the police, if it's a big enough problem, then I'll call the police and the police will come. But the police are the very last ones to find out if somebody is a concern. Neighbors, friends, coworkers, pastors, business owners, HR people, the people next door that you see that are suddenly doing something, you you have to own it and you have to call and trust that the professionals, like the police and mental health counselors, are going to do something about it if they know about it, but they can't do anything about it if they don't know about it. And that's where I think our biggest failure is citizens don't feel it's their responsibility. And and let me add this. Citizens think oftentimes, I don't want to get somebody in trouble. I don't want to get involved. And those two factors keep people from making phone calls. When you can, you and I know, you can call the police or you can call a pastor or you can call anybody and say, I don't want to get involved, but let me tell you what I know. And time is of the essence in these situations.
0: I would much rather people call the police and be wrong than people have to call the funeral director. Yeah, spot on. Spot on. Amen to that. And one of the things that I learned in police work, and I know you're gonna agree with me on this one, is and I don't I don't care what people believe. You believe in God, you believe in mother nature, whatever it is. If something is making you feel worrisome about somebody making a hair on your neck stand up your instincts are saying there's something wrong with this person i'd rather you take action and alert someone if you're wrong you can always apologize if you're not wrong you can't undo what they did
1: correct correct i can't tell you how many times you you know as well as i do how many times we've seen in a police report a neighbor who's interviewed who says well he was doing something he was acting kind of hinky a teacher who says a te- the teacher who the the, the shooter at uh, Virginia Tech University lived uh, not not just a couple blocks from me and went uh, to school with my kids and the uh, same school as my kids and and w- one of his in- one of his teachers was approached after the shooting and she said you don't even have to tell me who it was I know who it was
0: people yeah. know yeah. people know God God Mother Nature whatever gave you these instincts to survive and they gave you those instincts for a reason. So always trust your gut. And you made a great comment, Catherine, hinky. You know how many cases I've solved because someone was hinky, just didn't act right.
1: We know it, we all have that feeling. We all know and we get that feeling and we just shouldn't ignore it. And, And another problem that happens is even when somebody thinks about it, they talk to the wrong person about it. They'll call their neighbor, they'll call their friend or their sister, Or they'll tell their husband, "Yeah, it just seems kind of hinky. This is things," but they don't call the right people who can act.
0: Yeah, calling Joe the plumber down the street is not going to help.
1: Right, call call somebody who can act to check up on it. Doesn't mean you're getting anybody in trouble.
0: And a question I hate to throw questions at you. One of my pet peeves is that when someone commits a mass shooting. Everybody knows their name. The news media puts out their manifestos, the reason why they did it, whatever their twisted thinking was, and they become infamous. Meanwhile, someone who feeds thousands of people a day who are homeless, no one knows their name.
1: Yeah. Actually, I, I will tell you, just to give you a little positive thought about that, the media is keenly aware that they have... Been complicit in this, and there have been uh, some. There's been some research uh, that that um, I you know I can refer to, refer you to that shows that this contagion factor applies. That naming people turns them into martyrs. We've seen that particularly with the shooters uh, from the high school uh, out in Colorado, and. When that occurs and people begin to idolize them, then uh, it's not about the survivors and it's not about the victims. And and, and I think the reason that happens is because we are so, as a society, we're so hungry for news. And the news story, the narrative for the news story on the day of the shooting, the only narrative that, that the media can grasp is the known quantity,
0: the shooter. Let's talk about your book. Stop the killing. How to end the shooting crisis? Where do people get it? Where can they buy it? Where can they get more information?
1: Oh, I appreciate you mentioning that. I you can you can go to my uh, my website. It has all the places listed. Uh, Catherine Schweit, K A T H E R I N E S C H W E I T dot com. dot com. If you go there and you look at the buy the book link. You can, uh, if actually, cheapest best way to do it is sign up for my newsletter. Uh, there's a discount code on there. You can, you can get a, I think it's a 30% discount, and so you can get it for basically what I can get it for. But uh, that that would be great. To, and there's also more resources on that site. Um, and and you know we try to share. I'm going to try to share. I'm trying to share with a regular newsletter and through blog entries information. People need to just learn, kind of what's going on and be engaged and be involved, and then they won't be so afraid because they'll exchange some facts for some fear
0: knowledge is power without a doubt your website address one more time
1: katherine Catherine,
0: katherine thanks so much for all you've done thanks for your service and i really appreciate you being a guest on the law enforcement show all of it is very much appreciated
1: thank you so much for having me on
0: i'd like to thank our guests for coming on the law enforcement talk radio show The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.